Yeah, hello and welcome um, to another ad hoc meeting of the Corona Investigative Committee. We founded the committee a year ago and we are looking at the, um, the details of the virus and um, the consequences of the lockdown decisions and the um, other measures taken in order to combat the virus. And today we're talking to Mike Adams. He's an, um, a journalist activist and he runs the um, the platform uh, Natural News. And we're going to be talking about the virus and other details that are of interest at this point in time. Yeah, we just uh, we just had another interview, uh, except it was the other way around. Mike interviewed me. And uh, in that interview, I learned a lot already. But the most important thing, the, the, the one thing that I'm really interested in, Mike, is um, we have been told by many, many experts that uh, the, vi the virus has been isolated. Now, from one of your videos, I learned that you have done a lot of things in order to buy one of the specimens or whatever you call this, and you were not able to buy uh, the isolated virus. There's no way you can, you can get your hands on it. Is that correct? That, that's correct. And thank you for having me on, by the way. It's an honor to, to join you both. And uh, just as additional background to add into that, uh, yes, I'm a, I've been a nutrition and health freedom activist, you might say, journalist for a number of years. But uh, in 2013, we founded our own laboratory, which is a food science lab. And it's an it's a ISO accredited, uh, internationally recognized. We are audited and inspected annually, and we have to pass accreditation tests using blind samples. And we use very expensive multi-million dollar uh, uh, assessments, uh, instruments uh, for mass spec analysis. So we do glyphosate quantitation, we do heavy metals and toxic elements and nutritive elements quantitation. And we also have a microbiology lab. Now uh, with, with that as a background, and I'm a, I'm a published scientist. I've, I've published a paper at LCGC about the uh, mass spec quantitation of cannabinoids in hemp extracts. And I'm also the owner of two patents that came out of the quantitation mass spec instruments in in my lab. And one of those patents is called cesium eliminator. And it's a patent on a substance that can remove cesium from the human digestive tract in the aftermath of a nuclear war or nuclear accident. So people can look that up on a US patent uh, databases. So uh, sorry to put all that out there, but I think it's relevant. No, I'm so, glad you're doing this. Very, it's very impressive and very, very interesting. Yeah, and it's important because uh, one of the things that uh, many of our viewers are thinking about, many of those who got vaccinated, is is there a way to get this stuff out of our system? Well, I, I, I believe there are ways to do that. I believe that there are, there are things that people can take from uh, natural substances that can block the ACE2 receptor of the spike protein. And in fact, my lab currently using a single quad mass spec instrument, we're developing a method for the quantitation of what's called shikimic acid. And shikimic acid is a naturally occurring molecule. It's in a Chinese medicine herb called ba jiao, or in English, star anise. Mm -hmm. It's also found in, at some level in, uh, what is it, pine needles, certain types of pine needles and mm -hmm. fennel seeds. So uh, the shikimic acid, people can at home make their own extracts of shikimic acid, and it is used as the base ingredient for the prescription drug known as Tamiflu, which is uh, acknowledged by the FDA 
to block viral replication and to block respiratory infections of, of a viral nature. So mm -hmm. that's interesting. And I think there's a lot of hope for people who, who have that information. But we're working on a method so that we can, what we're actually trying to do, you'll love this, we're trying to, there was a, a research paper out of Oregon a few years ago where the researchers bought an off-the-shelf espresso machine, which uses a pressurized extraction method to make uh, espresso from coffee beans. Well, it turns out that these machines are very low cost, but very efficient uh, solvent extraction machines for herbs. And you can use water as your solvent, and you could use pine needles or the star anise herb, and you can make a shikimic acid extract using a $100 espresso machine in your kitchen. And what we're trying to do is document the efficiency of that process using espresso machines purchased from Amazon. So that's, that's our current research project. That's really, really interesting. I, I know a lot of our viewers are going to follow up on this. Can, where can you, uh, can, is there anything, that, any, any uh, documentation on this? Well, well, not yet. Our lab is called CWC Labs, mm -hmm. and that's the website, cwclabs.com. But we'll, we'll be publishing this on naturalnews.com uh, once it's available. The thing is that uh, method development is a very painstaking process. We spent 18 months, for example, developing a method for the quantitation of glyphosate, the weed killer, uh, you know, herbicide. Uh, but that's a very complex molecule and shikimic acid is much simpler and it's water soluble and it's easy to see with chromatography. So this should be, we're, we're trying to, to push it as quickly as we can, but that's, we, we, we wanna do science for humanity and release the results publicly, make it public domain, I'm not even going to wait for a science journal this time. We're just going to publish it ourselves. Here's our research. You can do it yourself because the world needs this right now. Excellent. And I can I ask you, have you looked at the um, ingredients of the vaccines in your lab? We have not been able to see that it's difficult to look for unknowns using mass spec instruments. The Closest you can get to that is what's called a time of flight mass spec instrument, which can give you what's called very accurate mass or molecular mass out to four decimal places. And it can tell you what it thinks the substance might be. But in order to confirm that, you have to obtain a certified reference material standard of the physical material that you think it is. And then you have to run your instrument method against that physical material to confirm, yes, these are the peaks, these are the masses, this is the ionization and so on. And it, as it turns out, and this is where, this is, this is kind of the subject of today, when I was trying to purchase certified reference material of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, I ran into a brick wall and I found that there, there are no isolates available. There, to my knowledge, I have looked and looked and looked and I've confirmed with other scientists, including Dr. Mikovits, who works in, in virology, and there are no isolates available. There, there are kind of cocktails of, of dead cells that have been uh, grown in bovine serum that they call a quote isolate and they'll send you half a milliliter of this liquid. But then in their own disclaimer, they will say, this should never be used to, to make vaccines because the, the majority of the genetic material in this vial is actually human host cell material and bovine serum material. <laughs> so there you go. It's not isolated. 
And is this something that um, is that the usual procedure for a virus isolate? I mean, if you, there might be others like from measles or something that you could buy. Is that always the same? Well, as a disclaimer, number one, I'm not a virologist and, and we don't typically check for viruses in our lab. We're checking for microbiology and other molecules such as glyphosate. So there are others who know more than I do about the issue of virology. But from the research that I've done, I, I, have, a, I have enough science to, to know how to, how to shop for certified reference materials, right? I, can, I, can, I, I know what standards are. I, I know what the descriptions are. I cannot find isolated materials on anything related to SARS-CoV-2 and even the materials for other things like measles, they, they are mixtures. From what I can see, they're all mixtures. So what, what I expect to see, frankly, is either a solid, which is a, a, a small powder of dried nanoparticles, and I, I have standards like that, or I expect to see a liquid with the standard in solution with a stated a quantitation amount or concentration. So for example, when I buy a glyphosate standard, the glyphosate is, is typically, it's 1000 micrograms per milliliter. So it's mm -hmm. mass over volume. And I know, and, and that's, a, that's a high concentration by the way. So I know that's what's in here. All of these standards that I can find as so-called isolates of, the, of COVID viruses, none of them offer any quantitation uh, specifications at all. So you don't even, even if there's something in there, you don't know how much. So how can you conduct science with it? It's very strange. What, it, how, indeed. How, how do you explain that there's some people out there um, who claim that the virus has been isolated? How, what, I, I've listened to some of them trying to explain this to me, but I wasn't able to understand. Whereas when you're saying, you were trying to get this uh, to find a specimen and pretty much everything you can buy pr pretty much buy everything. Uh, but for this part of for this um, coronavirus isolate, uh, you uh, kind of ran into a brick brick wall. How do you explain this? Why is and how is the other side not not the other side, but how are some scientists um, what on what basis can they conclude that the virus has been isolated? Well, I think it's a, an obfuscation of the terminology because the CDC uses the term isolate to refer to any sample taken from a person who is declared to be symptomatic and declared to be carrying a certain disease. So in other words, they, one of these so-called isolates, which is not an isolate, was taken from a woman in Seattle, Washington, I believe in February of 2020. And this is one of the, one of the materials that's available for sale to laboratories. And uh, essentially the history of this is they took a woman off an airplane who flew to Seattle from China. She was symptomatic. This was determined to have taken place during the time of this outbreak in China. And so it was simply declared that she had COVID and then samples taken from her which blood samples and then serum samples uh, derived from that were then declared to be an isolate. And it's literally called an isolate, even though it is not isolated particles. Now, and, and the way this is very easy to confirm is I could buy one of these samples. I could put it under a scanning electron microscope, and I would see a lot of different things of all kinds of different shapes and sizes and human cells and different genetic material strands and so on. An isolate should be uniform. It should be all the same thing. When yeah. I buy an isolate 
of glyphosate, I can go on to chemspider.com. I can see the molecular structure there. If I were to put the glyphosate under a microscope, there would be nothing but glyphosate. All the same, all uniform. That's an isolate. If you look under a microscope and you see all kinds of random crazy things and some cells and some genetic material and, and, and maybe even some blood cells mixed in there as well, you know, giants on, on, the, on the microscope, I'm sorry. That, that's not good science and that's not an isolate. How do you know what you have? And furthermore, how do you know how much you have? Now, and this gets to the PCR test. A, a, a PCR test claims to flag the presence of one or more strands of genetic material that is amplified. But they amplify it so much with the cycle thresholds that they're really amplifying background instrument noise. And what happens is they lose what we call in, in lab science, the signal to noise ratio. Mm -hmm. You have to have a signal-to-noise ratio. So if I'm looking at, let's say, mercury, if I'm looking at mercury in a food sample and my background noise is, is like this, but the mercury is the same, the mercury peak, we would say, is the same height as all the other background noise peaks, you can't say you found mercury because it has to stand out. And in, in, in fact, for qualitative measurements, you have to have a signal-to-noise ratio of at least three to one and for quantitative measurements, you have to have at least 10 to 1. And none of that exists in these PCR tests with the high cycle thresholds. So, so there's my answer. How do you go about, uh, if you look for, let's say, mercury um, in, a, in a food, how do you do, how do you, uh, what is the process? What do you have to do? First, you have to get an isolate, uh, I suppose. And then you have to teach the machine, this is what you're looking for, and... This is the quantity of, of what you're looking for. You got it. And what a lot of people don't realize is that machines do not know uh, anything about quantity until you teach them. Mm -hmm. So you're right. You acquire mercury standard. And this it, these are mercury atoms that are dissolved in a stabilizing liquid, which is typically some percentage of nit nitric acid uh, mm -hmm. with water. So it's a solution with a known mercury concentration. And that concentration might be you know, 10 parts per million or, or, or whatever it is. You normally make serial dilutions from that so that you're, you're getting mercury down to one part per billion. Uh, and then through these serial dilutions, and, and mercury would be analyzed on an ICP-MS, which is one of the instruments that we have, uses a plasma torch to destroy all molecules and separate the, the elemental atoms with ionization. And then it has a, a detector that can see that. So you would you'd run all these samples to, through the instrument, and then the instrument builds what we call calibration curve. The calibration curve is from one part per billion up to wherever the top of your curve goes, let's say from one part per billion to a thousand parts per billion or one part per million. Then you take unknown samples of your food, which must be turned into a liquid through a sample digestion method, also using nitric acid, that turns a known quantity of food, for example, 0.5 grams of food, would be dissolved into 50 milliliters of this solution. And so then you know right there, you, you can back calculate your concentration. Then you take this solution, you run it through the instrument. The instrument then tells you how much mercury was found in that sample compared to the calibration curve that you previously run. And from that, the instrument can tell you exactly, oh, you have 
you know, 57 parts per million or, or billion typically for mercury. It's very low in most foods. So it can give you an exact number. And then that's, that's your answer. That's how you do it. So in other words, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I just wanted to know this um, stuff, basically, that or this mix of things that you were able to, or that one could purchase, like with regards to the um, SARS-CoV uh, isolate, what would that usually be used for? I mean, it seems pretty useless if you if you cannot um, then detect the virus itself or like uh, only have this like clotted mix of things. What's that used for in general? Well, it's sadly it's used it's used for a lot of purposes that I think are unscientific. For example, it's used to verify the the PCR test, and okay. and so so yeah right. So here here's the thing with with PCR. Most of these PCR labs are simply downloading libraries from the CDC or other sources, and then they're using a digital library, uh, a sequence, a genetic material sequence to then flag a, a positive out of some test. But occasionally a lab will run against what they call a standard. So they'll buy one of these mixtures, which might contain, let's say 50,000 different genetic sequences in it. And then this PCR test will say, yep, that's positive. It detected COVID in that sample. But here's the problem. You could run 50,000 different PCR sequences against it, and it would also test positive for those things. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you have not, in fact, isolated any pathogen in this case. And, and furthermore, there's the quantitation issue. So here's what's interesting. We, my company sat down, my lab, we sat down with Thermo Fisher uh, about it, over a year ago to purchase their PCR equipment for food pathogen testing. Now, we currently use another brand of a non-PCR method that uses incubation. And it's a long process of incubation if you're looking for E. coli or salmonella, yeast and mold and so on. It takes about 72 hours. And in my business, we're in the business of, of clean food uh, lab-tested food, certified organic food for people. So we have to hold all of our inventory for all of this testing, and it adds about a working week to our ability to get food out to people. So we were talking to Thermo Fisher, and by the way, feel free to interrupt at any time if I'm if I'm going on no, too no, long. No, go ahead. This is important. Okay, we're talking to Thermo Fisher because they said they had a faster method using PCR, and the PCR could detect the genetic material of E. coli or salmonella or foodborne viruses or other pathogens. And that that could be done in a matter of just a few hours instead of three days. So we said, great. We sat down with them. And one of the first questions I asked is, uh, how does it give us quantitation results? And their answer was, it doesn't. It does not give quantitation. Now, now see, in our, in, in our existing microbiology lab, we get a quantitation window we can know the, the, the load of salmonella between two points. It's not as precise as a mass spec instrument, but we know it's greater than one number and less than another number. So that's valuable, that's valuable information. With PCR, you have nothing, no quantitation whatsoever. And I asked the question, well then how can we know whether this food is safe or unsafe, given that the FDA, and you know this being in Europe, the European Union has very strict levels of food safety, the allowable limits of microbiology or yeast or mold or mercury or glyphosate in specific foods. And in fact, 
I've looked at all the EU documents. It's about a hundred page document. How much glyphosate in green beans? How much glyphosate in meat, in milk? It's because it's different for different foods. So we know all this information. I was asking you, how can we get the answer from your PCR test? And they said, you can't, you can't. It just flags yes or no. Uh, this, is, this is something that Carrie Mullis has, has said over and over and over again, because it's, it's not, you, you, cannot, you cannot have a quantified PCR test in essence. That's what it boils down to, right? That's so right. you never you you cannot tell if if it tests positive, it may very well test positive to some completely meaningless fragment of something completely meaningless. Um, this is it is hard to understand that still the World Health Organization recommended to the rest of the world the Drosten test, which he says uh can tell us precisely uh, if someone is infected or not. I don't, I simply do not understand. But I, uh, if, if I take into account what you're telling me right now and what others have told us before, it is simply, it, I can't understand how people who are used to working with PCR tests, uh, dentists, for example, or medical doctors, how they can ever have fallen for this lie because it's so obvious. Well, it, it, it is obvious, and what's even more shocking about this, in, in my view, is the fact that these PCR tests are giving, given to healthy people who are asymptomatic, yeah, so they're yeah. not sick. Now, can you think of any other time in medical history, <laughs> or since the invention of the PCR, when, when did we go around testing healthy children for measles when they had no symptoms yeah. running them through a PCR test and saying, oh, you flagged positive for one genetic sequence of a measles, you know, a viral protein. Mm -hmm. And now you have to not go to school or not have friends or wear a mask. That would be absurd. Or pick any, any disease, whether, you know, my, microbial or viral or, uh, you know, fungi or whatever. Pick any disease. Since when have we run around testing healthy people with a non-quantitative test and then telling them you have to be a prisoner in your own home, or even at a hospital, then saying, oh, they tested positive, they must need a ventilator. You know, it, it, this is medical malpractice and science malpractice at a global level that we've never seen before. Is it possible that, um, you know, for these, um, for these machines to be uh, basically, uh, to be able to recognize the the sequence that you're looking for, is it possible to do this kind of in on a computer generated um, with some sort of computer generated method? You know, like what we heard about Drosten when he um, uh, sort of assembled this test. Yeah, Professor Drosten, that he would he was looking at this uh, gene sequences database and then kind of put together some sort of um, computer model of the sequence that he was looking for. So is it possible to kind of not go through the isolate, you know, but to go through the computer generated model? And then, of course, I mean, in, in I don't know, I, I guess in a real scientific world, one would at some point at least need to test it against the real virus, you know, the isolate that you just told us is not existing, at least not in the pure form uh, that would be needed to do that. 
but the 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 machines could be um, kind of uh, be uh, leveled out or like be told to look for this this computer generated um, sequence. Is that do I understand well, that correctly? Exactly correct, Viviana. Um, that's a really important point. Is that most of the PCR instruments that are being run right now uh, are just downloading digital libraries, and they've never confirmed any testing against physical specimens or what we call CRMs, certified reference materials. So I'm aware that there are people who wanted to make a lot of money during, especially during last year, and they would run out and buy a PCR uh, instrument suite, which in the U.S in terms of lab equipment, it's very inexpensive. It's only $120,000 or so you can buy a PCR uh, system. Even if you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> uh, some of these people have made, in one weekend, they would make a million dollars in the parking lot, in a van, running their PCR equipment for the hospital and just flagging positive, 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 positive. And then the hospital says, oh, well, we have all these positive COVID people now. We're, we're flagging Medicare, Medicaid, insurance companies. Now we're getting, you know, a COVID bonus bailouts for the hospital. So, see, the thing is, everyone in the chain was making extra money, loads of money, by faking it and knowing that it, it wouldn't pass a scientific scrutiny. Now, to further answer your excellent question, by the way, there are, in, in any instrument, in a lab, including mass spec instruments or chromatography or PCR or what have you, we can always, we could theoretically look at, let's say cadmium or lead contamination. We could say, okay, we know the mass of lead and we're gonna look for masses and say that those masses are lead. However, that would never pass ISO accreditation. And the only way to pass ISO accreditation, which is what we are, is you have to have certified reference material of lead of a known concentration in a known solvent. And then you have to confirm your findings against a real physical material because we can't, we can't conduct science in the world of a, a virtual world of definitions and galleries and libraries and then claim that's real. But that's what's being done with PCR for the most part. In fact, we covered, it was an FDA document that acknowledged that the approval of the, the RT-PCR test that has been used this entire time was approved based on a test made from simulated, a simulation of, of COVID, of SARS-CoV-2, because they did not have reference materials at the time. So they took a digital definition and then they combined they, they, uh, a, a gene bank they combined then, they, they were able to acquire some genetic sequences in the physical world, not from COVID, and combine them with human cells, and they simulated COVID, and then they said, yes, the test works. So the very basis of the approval of the test was done without certified reference materials. And I believe this is why the CDC recently announced that they are recalling this test on December 31st of this year, because they know it's bogus, it's not scientific. I think we're zeroing in, we're more and more, at least in my view, zeroing, zeroing in on the fact that there is no virus. Um, or there is a virus, but it's nothing special. Uh, you know, this is what uh, Professor Dolores Cahill told us. Uh, we, um, I think we interviewed her a couple of times, and the last time we interviewed her, 
she, by the way, um, she, she was being, uh, her, what she said was confirmed by Dr. Sin Hung Lee, um, uh, he, who's a very well-known doctor in the United States. Um, he said, the only way you can see what's really being, what, what this thing tests positive for is by sequencing the, uh, the molecule, whatever you take of, uh, from the throat or from the nose, by, uh, by, 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 rather by sequencing the positive PCR test. If you sequence it, and then you find out what, what it tests positive for. And um, Dolores told us, and there is a new story out just this week, and that there's a similar story from the Bay Area. This is from New York. She told us that in New York, they sequenced uh, 1,500 positive tests. And half of them was influenza uh, uh, A, and the other half was influenza B. The same story. I hope it's. I'm not confusing these, but I think the same story was was uh, published a couple of days ago from the Bay Area. So what we're looking at is there is no virus, or at least there is no coronavirus. But rather, and that explains why uh, why the flu has literally disappeared. Rather, it looks and sounds as though they relabeled the common flu. I mean, Ryan, it could also be that there is the virus, but that the test really just, you know, uh, tests, you know, reacts positively to um, a variety of viruses like influenza B, C, whatever, rhinovirus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever, and maybe a little bit coronavirus and of different types. Mm -hmm. You know, just what we saw in these ring tests. Um, you know, trials they did like when they sent a lot of test uh, probes, uh, you know, like uh, test samples to the to the labs, and then we had a lot of um, positive testing for like really like um, common uh, coronaviruses. So false false positives for the SARS-CoV-2. I, I I would say that there is a virus. There there are multiple viruses, the common viruses. And uh, Dr. Mikovits even says some of them are, are monkey viruses. Some of them are monkey viruses that were given in flu shots in previous years. Uh, but what there isn't is there is not a novel coronavirus. Th there's nothing new here. There is, a, there is a virus mechanism, in my understanding, because the, the viral replication mechanism uh, does exist, but it's, it's a multitude of viruses that are just labeled coronavirus. And most importantly, the spike protein is very real. The spike protein was an engineered biological weapon. That's very clear now. The spike protein is being put into the vaccines as the antigen target in order to build immunity against the spike protein. And in addition, the mRNA vaccines contain instructions for the body, for the cells, to build spike proteins. Now, of course, the reason that is crucial to understand is because the spike proteins are themselves uh, dangerous to, to human health. They cause vascular damage. This has been confirmed by the Salk Institute and several other studies, by the way, vascular damage, neurological damage, immunological damage, and reproductive developmental damage as well. They target the ovaries and the testes. They target the adrenal glands. They get circulated into the lungs, neurological tissue, the spleen, the heart, and so on. And this is why at least one recent autopsy that found someone who died after being vaccinated found the spike protein in all the major organ systems of the body because it circulates and it replicates if you have mRNA as an injection. So uh, Dr. Mikovits told me that the original platform 
of this, which was a, a kind of a stew, a cocktail of multiple viruses, was number E6 from a 96 well plate sample of many different uh, possible candidates for biological weapons development. So they took E6 because it was the most aggressive bioweapon. And this research took place, she told me, at Fort Detrick, Maryland. And some of it was funded by DARPA. DARPA later on funded the vaccine research for Moderna. Mm -hmm. And then once this, this sample, again, this cocktail of dangerous viruses was acquired by Fauci and the NIH, they shuttled it to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and gave them money. They shared the intellectual property then with the communist Chinese military, which runs those labs. And then the, the Chinese uh, virologist added the additional gain of function so that it, it would more aggressively attack human cells, ACE2 receptors. And that became then this monster of the spike protein that has special affinity to human cells. So if you were to ask my, my view of the origins of this, and, and maybe you haven't asked that yet, but this is just my opinion, is that this, this started in, in the US weapons research program. It was augmented and finalized in, in the Wuhan labs in China using United States money. Mm -hmm. And then it was deployed both with a release and in vaccines themselves. And that's how we get to where we are today. And the whole thing was augmented by the fraudulent PCR tests. Yeah, that's what we think too. So ultimately what this boils down to is that the real bioweapon is the so-called vaccines because that's how they put how, how they get the spike protein into people's bodies. Otherwise, if it was just a natural virus, even if it was a manipulated or part man-made virus with the spike protein, it would probably uh, the, our immune system would probably be uh, 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 in good shape, unless of course it's been tampered with. But under normal circumstances, our immune system would be able to fight it off. Uh, but since it is, this immune system is being bypassed by getting by getting people to get these shots. That's that's what the real what the real threat is. This is the bioweapon. This is what you're saying, right? I, I would agree with that assessment. From all mm -hmm. the available evidence, it looks like the spike protein is the bioweapon, yeah. and yeah. that the the vaccine, the, the the whole vaccine hysteria, is a cover story yeah. to yeah. convince people to subject themselves to, shall I say, euthanasia, slow euthanasia? I'm afraid that's correct. I I'm think that's what that's this correct. is. Because mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what the evidence is, uh, that's what the evidence is showing us. I mean, as you said in our first interview, um, it is impossible to sweep all of these adverse uh, if, uh, uh, events under the rug. It is coming out. It is coming out with full force right now. And if it is correct that between a half a million and maybe even a million people have died after vaccination, there are lots of people out there who are bemoaning their relatives, their lost relatives, and, and many of them will not. Uh, be uh, pacified by doctors telling them, well, it was his time, in particular, not if he's only a 21-year-old or so. And, and all, all the other side effects that are not necessarily, at least not yet, deadly, like myocarditis in young men, 
there's an explosion in myocarditis, at least here in Europe. I'm afraid it's the same in the United States in younger men. For example, a couple of weeks ago, a Danish soccer player, a national on the, on the Danish national soccer team collapsed on the lawn. And he was just lucky enough that there were lots of doctors who came and uh, resuscitated him. Uh, that's why he survived. But myocarditis, he will never, ever be able to play soccer again because well, right soccer, what the, yeah, go ahead. Oh, exactly. You, you hit upon a very important point here. And myocarditis is just a, a fancy medical name for inflammation of the heart. Okay. Yeah. So anytime you hear itis, you know, gingivitis is inflammation of the gums, for example. So any itis is inflammation. Now, remember, I'm a food scientist. And so for 20 years, I've studied foods, including their inflammatory effects on human health. And here's my grave concern in all of this. We've now injected at, you know, the, across the world, I don't know how many hundreds of millions or maybe billions of people with this vaccine containing a spike protein or, or variations of it. The spike protein is a highly inflammatory biological weapon, and it attacks the vascular system, the neurological system, and so on. Now, in, in the United States especially, we are known for a nation that eats a lot of highly processed foods. And even around the world, people rely on very low-cost, cheap, and often processed or partially hydrogenated seed oils, such as corn oil, canola oil, or mm -hmm. uh, soy oil. These oils are well known in nutrition circles to be highly inflammatory mm -hmm. to both the cardiovascular system and the neurological system. So not only do we have processed food diets, and there are many other things in the diets, you know, homogenized milk fats, for example, or artificial uh, ingredients and preservatives and so on. Uh, but these alterations of foods, I mentioned, you know, partial hydrogenation, it causes inflammation, and it also results in the production of trans fats during the food manufacturing process. Trans fatty acids are recognized even by the FDA as causing uh, heart disease and they can contribute to blood sugar disorders, obesity, even, even potentially Alzheimer's as well. What happens, this is my question, what happens when you take a nation of people, which is the United States, living largely on processed pro-inflammation junk foods and then you inject half of them with a pro-inflammation spike protein biological weapon and then you head into the winter season where vitamin D deficiency becomes chronic and widespread, and you have another common flu that gets released, which would trigger the hyperinflammatory response of the immune system known as antibody-dependent enhancement, or ADE. And my grave concern, Reiner, is that I'm very, I'm very afraid that we are going to see millions of Americans die from the effects of this vaccine in the next one or two flu seasons. And I may be underestimating that by a lot. I'm afraid you're absolutely correct because what you're saying is being confirmed by all, all of the experts who we spoke with, Professor Bhakti, Dr. Vodak, Mike Yeadon, uh, Roger Hotkinson from Canada, everyone. And of course, uh, very recently, we're going to talk to these people as well, but I'm afraid they're going to confirm this very same story uh, by um, uh, the doctor from Idaho. What's his name again? Great guy. Um, another Canadian. Everyone agrees that this is something that we need to be very, very worried about ADE, antibody dependent enhancement. But what you're telling us now, this is like a lesson in uh, 
nutritional science, but it's it gives us the whole story. That's why all of a sudden I understand what this is really about. Uh, it's not just the shots, it's the combination of these things. Yes, and, and if, if you don't mind, let me add something very important to that. Um, the, the vaccines in, in Europe, you have AstraZeneca vaccines there that have been linked to blood clots. Now, blood clotting factors are amplified in an environment of what I call sludge blood. Now, sludge blood is blood that you know doesn't move very well. The blood cells themselves, the, the, the platelets, do not separate. They, they clump up even on a normal day. Sludge blood results in high blood pressure because it takes more pressure to pump the sludgy blood throughout the system. And sludge blood is caused by many dietary and lifestyle practices, including eating inflammatory foods and a lot of fried foods and a lot of junk foods and so on, and other, other habits as well. People who, I think there's a tipping point here. I think people who have healthy blood, and those tend to be people who eat superfoods, who are into natural dietary, habits. Maybe they eat the Mediterranean diet, which is very good for cardiovascular health. Maybe they use olive oil or even coconut oil for cooking instead of the cheap seed oils and so on. There are a thousand things I could talk about how to make healthy blood. One of them is just drinking more water, by the way. People are chronically dehydrated. But if you add spike protein via injection to someone who has sludge blood, then your clotting factors are amplified perhaps by two orders of magnitude suddenly somebody who otherwise would not have clotted is now clotting like crazy. Even young, healthy men, athletic men, even in high school, they're dropping dead after the vaccine. This is being documented you know, across, across the board. So we must look at the combination of, of food and dietary factors, the state of your blood versus what you're exposed to, not only spike proteins from vaccines, but also spike protein shedding from other people who have been vaccinated who are near you and, and they are shedding the spike protein even via contact surfaces. So just to summarize, my belief is that people who follow more natural health practices in terms of their food choices and lifestyles, they can resist the damage mm -hmm. from the spike protein. And that's great news for humanity, but it's also an urgent message that people need to get healthy now like never before. It's, uh... Do you think when they, I mean, if, you, if your theory from, or you know, the idea that it's a bioweapon, that if that's correct, do you think all that, all these details uh, have been considered by the ones who created the, the weapon? Because that's, I mean, that's really a lot of uh, details that come into play in order to get like the maximum result of disaster, it seems. I, I, I would guess that they have considered all of these factors and they know that Uh, just like the drug companies dominate advertising in the media in the United States, so do processed junk food companies. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, sodas are highly inflammatory in terms of their high fructose corn syrup and phosphoric acid. So highly, acid, highly acidic beverages combined with fried foods and all the other things I just mentioned lead to really a whole industry of heart disease and heart transplants and autoimmune disorders, diabetes, type 2 diabetes is rampant in the United States among Latino populations, as well as many African-Americans who tend to be vitamin D deficient. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, there are so many factors that are important here, but I, I've not heard many people talk about the nutritional, uh, how it, how, the nutritional factors and how that plays out to your survival rate against all of these vaccines. 
It makes perfect sense to me. Um, and it makes perfect sense to me also that uh, over the last, uh, let's say, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, the uh, food industry and the pharmaceutical industry worked hand in hand. And this is not this has not happened overnight because, you know, when um, my wife and I, my wife hasn't spent that much time in the United States, but when uh, she was there uh, in 2019 and 2020, she kept um, alerting me to the fact that there are so many obese people, many more than you will find them here in Europe. And that, of course, is a result of uh, the uh, well, the uh, food industry literally poisoning the people in essence, because that's, literally that's poisoning. what I think is, is what happened. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly the case. There's an ingredient that's used in the United States in processed meat. It's called sodium nitrate. Mm. And uh, it directly produces nitrosamines once it comes into contact with the hydrochloric acid in your stomach. Nitrosamines cause cancer. Mm. They cause brain cancer. They cause leukemia. They cause... Uh, colorectal cancer. Nitrosamines are known to be so effective at causing cancer that in lab uh, analysis, in, when they're using lab rats and they want to give them cancer in order to test cancer interventions, they inject them with nitrosamines to give them cancer in the first place. So if you're eating processed meat, you're eating cancer if it contains sodium nitrite. Now, the USDA was made aware of this in 1978. And they decided even at that time to grandfather it in. And here's the reason why, because sodium nitrite as a preservative makes the meat look pink and fresh. So it's a, a coloration additive that has the side effect of causing cancer. And it's in hot dogs and it's in beef jerky and it's in canned soups with ham. It's in sandwich meat, lunch meat, pizza, pepperoni. It's all over the processed meat industry. It's in bacon. And it's been known that it kills people for decades. So that's an important, uh, that's probably the most important part of this lesson as far as I'm concerned. And I know my wife would agree. I'm sure Viviana does too. We have to be much more careful about what we eat. We have to learn how to get away from these poisons and eat healthy food. That's the only way to do it, I guess. Uh, plus, of course, we have to fight during the uh, season in which the sun doesn't really shine that much. We have to fight our uh, vitamin D deficiency. And that'll solve half the problems, right? I, I believe the pandemic would be over if, yeah. Uh, yeah. if former President Trump would have just said, hey, everybody, take vitamin D. Or even if the government had said, we're going to give away vitamin D and zinc for free to everybody. Pick it up at your local post office. It's all mm -hmm. free, all you want. That would have ended the pandemic right there, but it wouldn't have enriched the vaccine companies and the patent holders like Fauci. It wouldn't have empowered the CDC. It wouldn't have empowered the governors like Newsom and Cuomo and so on. It wouldn't have given them all the things that they wanted, even though humanity suffered in the process. They were willing to kill to gain power over humanity. And, and I mean, imagine, what does that mean about where we are now and the urgency of peacefully rising up and, and protesting this and stopping it. Yeah, it means it's time. It's high time. Um, but it, that's a good thing because uh, ultimately more and more people are waking up to this. And even those who have made the wrong decisions, I know some who have gotten the, vac the shots and uh, 
who are uh, now about to cross over to our side of the aisle. So that's the only good news that all of this is coming out right now and that people are getting ready to, to rise up because that's the only way to go. Yes, it's sad that, that humanity has to learn through so many mistakes as history has shown us. And yeah. why do we have to repeat the mistakes of history on a larger and larger scale? It makes no sense. I mean, uh, if humanity is going to save itself, we've got to stop destroying ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's really yeah. simple. It's very simple, actually. Well, this is great, Mike. It's a pleasure and an honor, and I'm really grateful you, you took this time. Uh, I know this is going to be one of the most popular uh, sessions that we've had, and I know we're going to have a lot of questions from our viewers, and I'm pretty sure we're going to have to ask you to uh, get interviewed by us at least one more time. Well, I'd, I'd be honored to come back, and your work is incredibly important for the world. So I'm honored to be here, and we'll do everything we can to support your efforts. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Mike. We'll be in touch. Okay, thank you. Okay.